Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with your hosts, Jake and Randy, discussing all things freestyle frisbee and whatever else that comes up. Welcome to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. Hey, Jake, how you doing today? I'm very excited today. How are you, Randy? I'm doing great, too. And I know why you're excited, because we're going to start another journey with another jammer. So why don't you bring in today's guest? Yeah, so I'm very excited about today's guest. I actually met this guy um, back in 2014. I was traveling up in Toronto, and I'd never been to Toronto before and was amazed by the jam scene there. And I uh, got to spend some time talking with this guy, and it turns out he's been in the Toronto jam scene since the very beginning, and he's been playing all the way through up until today. And he's pretty much the father figure of that jam scene. You know, he shepherds it, he inspires everybody. He's also a really great jammer, so it's going to be really fun to pick his brain. Uh, welcome to the call, Patrick Chartrand. Thank you, Jake. Thank you, Randy. Yeah, it's awesome to have you join us here. And, you know, usually we start off with the first question uh, being, how did Frisbee come into your life? But I'm feeling like stray a little bit here today because of what has happened in the NBA finals and the championship. And Toronto won. I mean, that's the first time Toronto's won. I think maybe the first time Canada has ever had an NBA champion. Is that true? Absolutely. Yes, it is. The city has gone nuts, completely crazy. Um, very, very exciting. It's funny. My neighbor went out yesterday and bought a basketball net. That's how, you know, the impact of these <laughs> things, right? But uh, no, the, the city's just completely gone nuts and, and they're just having a great time. It's been a long time. 1993 was the last time we had a championship here and that was Major League Baseball when we won the World Series. That's really cool. I mean, it was an exciting series to watch and an awesome display of athleticism on both sides. Yeah, either team could have won. I mean, bottom line is they're very closely matched. Yeah, indeed. Back to flat ball business. So so let's start. So how did Frisbee come into your life, Patrick? Okay, so uh, 1972, I was 15 years old. My brother and his friends were playing, we were in a circle, and they were playing Frisbee, and I kind of got in. I'd never seen the damn thing before, and the disc came to me, and I kept turning my wrist over, and the disc kept going onto the ground. Well, the guys thought that was hilarious. And it just infuriated me. So basically, I went out the following week and bought a disc. And that was pretty well it after that. So you had to go prove yourself. You were doing bad throws and you wanted to say, no way, guys, I got this. Well, I was always a better athlete than these guys. They were a couple of years older than me. So them laughing at me was just like, ugh. <laughs> 1972. I mean, that is like back in some real crust days. Yes. Yeah, so 15 years old is the first time you were introduced to it. So so when did you find other folks like the group of organized Frisbee activities? So a number of things kind of lined up along the way. Um, as I started playing more Frisbee, there were some local guys, my neighbor, a couple doors up the street, who was really good also. So we got into the habit of playing throw and catch. And then I came across the Charles Chips. Well, that just blew my mind. And, you know, I was, you know, basically consuming that as much as possible and trying to do the stuff that was in there. Somehow, by 1976, I had learned how to nail delay all on my own. I'd never actually seen anybody do it. You had never seen anybody do the delay, and you just kind of came across that on your own. Yeah. Well, wow. He was, he was reading that book, the Charles Tips. Okay. 
the book talked about it. So like, you know, oh. I'm, I'm like trying to do this thing, right? So finally I figured out how to do that. So that was pretty cool. And then one day I'm in my basement and my buddy comes flying in and he's going, that guy, that guy is down at the beach with that girl playing Frisbee. And I knew exactly who he was talking about. He was talking about Ken Westerfield because people had spotted him all around the city, him and Jim Kenner and Gail McCall used to go all around the city playing Frisbee. So we hopped on our bikes. I lived two minutes from the water, and we whizzed down there. Sure enough, there's Ken and I think it was Gail. It might have been Mary Catherine, but I think it was Gail doing this awesome speed flow demonstration. There's a huge crowd. I was blown away. So they finished, and you know everybody kind of dissipated, and I sheepishly went up, and I said, hey, Ken, I'm a fan. Can you sign my book? <laughs> oh, <cool. laughs> wow you're that guy you're that guy you're the guy right so he signed my book he wrote in there you know fly high ken westerfield and that was pretty well that for that year now as i mentioned i had learned how to nail delay a year later i'm on the water right on the sand and i'm playing and my buddy mist throws the disc and i go to pick it up and ken's there he goes hey how you doing and i'm like whoa you're the guy so we stop and we chat and he says to me you want to play well, at this point in time, I'm trembling because this legend wants to play with me. So we played for five or ten minutes, and you know we, we have a, a good time. He said two things afterwards that changed my life. And he said to me when we were finished playing, he goes, you know what? you got to keep playing because you're one of the better local players. And, of course, you know, hearing that from him felt pretty damn good. And then he said to me, oh, yeah, we play on the other side of the tennis courts every day, so why don't you come by? Well, the next morning, I went over there, and he was there. And then that's how it all started. It was amazing, and it just turned out I was taking that summer off. So I basically played with him every day that summer. And then after that, what happened was, you kind of fast forward a couple of years, Ken and I had become very close friends by that point. Uh, in the interim, he had introduced me to all the local players, and some guys started moving down to the beach where we lived. So now we had a local beach scene. Brian McElwain and Kevin Sparkman lived out in the West End. So they were kind of coming down to the beach because this is where it was happening also. So things really started to percolate. And you know where we played, Jake, in that spot where we brought you, that yeah. beautiful spot with the wind, right? Yeah. Yeah. Talk about that spot. So where is it and, and what's the beach like in Toronto? So we play on the grass. And that spot is uh, an amazing spot. We've had some excellent players from over the years join us down there. Uh, when you get a southeastern breeze, it is amazing. And um, the southeastern breeze, you can't get a better breeze anywhere. It comes in 10, 15 kilometers an hour. You just body roll from here to Sunday. Wow. And uh, yeah, just a lovely spot. Well, it's interesting you say the beach. You don't really think of Toronto with a beach. Uh, when I say the beach, there's um, a few beaches in Toronto where we live. The community as a whole is called the beach. But there's actually several beaches that are linked together. Um, but we're called the Eastern Beaches collectively. And then in the West End, there's another beach. It's called the West Beach. But that's by the Palais Royale, which is a pretty special spot out there also. But regardless, we do get a uh, when you get a southern breeze off the water, it's, it's a pretty amazing thing, that's for sure, because it's a vast lake it's one of the great lakes so that place that you that we jammed you and i jammed together on the beach that's where you used to play with ken back in the day yep that's where we used to play we've had uh coloradicals were there in the early 80s um we've had uh i think rob freed came over and played with us i believe chris, i'm not sure if chris ryan came or not but we've had some players over the years steve hubbard came down there and played with us um so we've had a few guys over the years come and join us down there 
it's a beautiful spot. It is a beautiful spot. The island. I remember you talking to me about the island, but we never got to go there. So can you talk a little bit more about that? So the island, um, all of the older players will relate to this. It's a pretty amazing spot there. And it's right downtown Toronto. And you have to take a ferry to get there. And the challenge is, is, you know, in the morning when you're trying to get there, say there's a tournament on because we used to have the Canadian Open there. You got to catch your ferry because if you don't catch your ferry, then who knows how long you're going to wait. And depending on what the timing is, sometimes there's crowds of two, three, four, five hundred people waiting for a ferry. So it makes it a little bit tricky just trying to get over there. Once you're there, you're in paradise. And uh, that's where we, we held the Canadian Open for well over a decade. So do you remember the first tournament that you participated in? And did Ken Westerfield kind of guide you in that direction? And maybe talk a little bit about that and how you got introduced more into the organized aspect of freestyle. Sure. So um, I believe the very first tournament I went to probably was one of the Canadian Opens. It might have been an Etobicoke tournament. We used to have three tournaments in Toronto a year. We'd have Etobicoke, we'd have the Canadian Open, and then we'd have a Beaches tournament. I believe the first tournament I went to was a Canadian Open. Well, I, I went as a spectator for a couple of years beforehand and was completely blown away by what I saw. Uh, I came away from there, I think the first year, maybe the second year. No, I think it was the first year having seen uh, Joey Hudoklin and Jeff Felderbaum play. And that just blew my mind. I couldn't believe what I was seeing because... You know, people were playing and we had great players here. We had the brothers here. We had the radicals here. We had some big time players, but I just loved the way that Joey and Jeff played. And it just completely inspired me. And I think it was the next year I actually entered the Open. And I'm not sure where we finished. I mean, you know, it's, there's a long journey there, as, as you know, right? Who is your partner? I believe, I'm just trying to think that year, it probably would have been a fellow by the name of Stuart Godfrey. And I was actually just out with him last night. I mean, one of the great things about this sport is you make lifelong friends, right? Yeah, so I believe it would have been Stuart Godfrey would have been that tournament, unless it was a fellow by the name of Wayne Daniels. I can't remember. There were a couple of local guys who I'm still in contact with, you know. But, I mean, Ken was the big mentor back then. I mean, he was just, he had everybody under his wing, and uh, he was so free and open with, uh, with the moves and with the guidance and you know, with helping us um, develop and, and just kind of relax, right? Like, you know, his whole thing was like, hey, you're going to the Open, you're not going to win. Go have a good time. Great advice from a, from a, a you know, a legend, right? And that's great that he was really open to nurturing you guys, because that isn't always the case. But it sounds like he really embraced everyone and just said, let's go have fun. That was very much Ken's uh, personality is, you know, Ken was a very sharing guy and he just kind of supported us all. And, you know, we were doing shows with Ken also. We did way more shows than we did tournaments because he had his business, the Good Times Frisbee shows. So we were doing shows with him. I probably did 100 shows with him, you know, over a period of time, maybe more. As did Brian, as did did Kevin, as did uh, Gary Arbach. He was kind of getting something from it, too, because he had like a a stable of of great players that he could draw from to support him in making money. So it was, you know, a a great relationship. It went both ways. Right. You know, but he did it for the pureness of it. I mean, you know, he's just a good guy uh, supporting young players trying to find their way in a sport. It's so interesting hearing you talk about the Toronto scene. And I'm on the West Coast. And so there was a really vibrant scene that was happening up in Vancouver. I, I had much more exposure to those guys and what they were doing. You know, there was like Jim Brown and John Anthony and Bill King and Glenn Whitlock and Jack Ognistoff, like some really amazing jammers back in the day. So I was really focused on that part of Canada. 
and never, ever got exposed to the Toronto side. So I guess I'm curious, did you guys ever have any cross-pollination with the Vancouver gang or did you guys pretty much stay separate? Um, they came to the Open a few times and um, I never really got to know them very well. I got to know Glenn very well and Glenn and I competed with and against each other you know, a, a few times, right? But uh, the other guys were more like legends to me, right? Because they're a little bit older than me and had been around a bit longer. But certainly I had a John Anthony disc and a uh, Bill King disc. And as a matter of fact, I'd never met John Anthony until the Worlds in 2016. Really? And I got to meet him and I got to jam with him. And I was, I was so honored that, to have that opportunity. You know, it was, it was really nice. Yeah, they, they, were, they were sort of uh, my idols. Uh, you know, I was a younger kid. And I was, I don't know, maybe two or three years younger. But when you're 15 and they're 18, that's a big gap, right? So it's a different thing. But yeah, they were idols for me as well. And just I remember seeing them as a threesome and Jim Brown, his ability to padiddle and right. the whole cosmic catastrophe. And they were just kind of on their own, you know, wavelengths. They were seeing things very differently than a lot of people. So I was very attracted to that for sure. Well, it's interesting. You mentioned the cosmic catastrophe because um, we used to play that here all the time. And you had to do both, padilla with both hands at the same time. And you're, you know, trying to take your buddy out. At the end of the day, after you've been jamming for eight hours, but you haven't, you're not ready to drop down the damn disc. So, you know, it's okay, let's go. Let's see if I can take you here, right? Because, you know, we haven't had enough of this sport. So those that of us so who are great. younger have no idea what cosmic catastrophe is. So can one of you guys explain it? Yeah. So I'm going to say, so that's interesting because this must be a Canadian thing because cosmic catastrophe never filtered down into the lower 48 uh, and... I had never seen it done before, and it's so wild to hear you say that Toronto had embraced it as well. So cosmic catastrophe for folks out there who have never heard of it or don't know. So you have to padiddle a disc on both your right hand and your left hand, and there is an 8 by 8 square that is you know, made by some rope, and it's like a boxing match. So both players go in with their two discs padiddling and they're kind of jousting with each other and trying to knock the other disc off from the other player and the idea is to try to get the two discs off of the other person's hand and you score points by how many discs you have left padiddling on your finger so ultimately you want to try to get two but a lot of times the strategy would be that you would come in with your two discs and you would sort of kamikaze one disc give it up and then get the person's attention try and knock off the other one so usually one point would be scored but a two-point score that was huge and jim brown is legendary i've never seen anybody be able to even come close to what that man can do padiddling maybe you know it would have been really cool to have john dwork and him have it out um, that would have been really great that would have been an epic match but jim brown unbelievable that, that's a great description i'm sitting here with a big smile on my face i i, I think that's quite accurate and you know, there's a certain pleasure in taking out your buddy's disc, you know. Can you use your hand, your free hand, if you once you lose one, to knock the other disc? Or it's all disc-to-disc contact? All disc-to-disc. And actually, Skippy Jammer used to do a move which was kind of questionable, where he wouldn't actually take the disc and, and throw it, try to shoot it at the other disc that you're padiddling. He would kind of like trying to shoot it at your neck. So you'd be like, oh, <laughs> and, then, and then he would go after the other disc. So, yeah, Skippy, I'm calling you out, brother. <laughs> wow. We got to bring that game back. It sounds like so much fun. It's a, it's a great time for us. Like I say, it would be at the end of the day when we weren't ready to put the disc down. And, you know, meanwhile, we were spent, but it was still, hey, let's have a little bit more fun, you know? So 
back. So let's go back to the tournament days and the demo day. So did those things go simultaneously for you or did you start with demos and then move to tournaments or was it how did those things interrelate to each other started with demos and then went to the tournaments and uh then they were both kind of happening at the same time ken would have uh he was he was very good at getting different gigs going and different sponsors so uh the canadian national exhibition every year had stuff going on so we were involved in that and we were doing a parade for that and um then there were, you know, events happening at different uh, camps or sporting events, football games, you know, just different things going on all through the summer. And then into the fall, there's the huge college thing that was happening and uh, both in Canada and into the States. So, you know, we crossed the border and did shows in the States also. I guess technically we weren't supposed to be doing that, but, you know, that never really stopped us, right? Wait, why were you not supposed to be crossing the border? Well, I'm just thinking, you know, Canadians working in the U.S., making money. I don't know. No green cards. Got it. Uh, not sure how that all works. Ken paid me in cash, so I didn't really give it to <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, no, it was a lot of fun. And, uh, you know, the thing is with the shows is we would have a routine and we would do, you know, a routine which helped you. Then for when you're doing tournaments, because you've had all this practice playing in front of people, and it's always different playing in front of people than not, as you know. Yep. So that was uh, kind of like a, a side bonus to it all. But then with the shows, we did lots of other things. We had lots of gags that we did and, and different things that entertained people. And, and that was always fun, too. Yeah, I'm curious, like, like, what did your show look like? So was it a 10-minute show? Was it a 45-minute show? How did, what did What shape did it take? I'm always curious to see how people developed their shows. So let me give you the long version, okay? We did have a 10-minute show, but we had an hour show also. So just, in, and there was variations in between depending on where we're going, what the physical layout was, so on and so forth. But the longest show that we'd have is we'd go out there and, you know, we'd have a microphone and usually Ken would be working the mic and uh, introduce ourselves and, you know, say some stuff and then start talking a little bit about the history of Frisbee and, you know, where it all came from and when it was invented and who was involved with it and, uh, then we'd start off and we'd start showing discs and, you know, you show a mini and you throw it and then you show a big jumbo toss tosser and throw that. And then a number of other discs in between, including, you know, the university crowd loved the Busby because, you know, we just put some tobacco in it. We couldn't put goob in there. Just put some tobacco in it and take a, a drag and throw it to the next guy. And, you know, the kids are all be going nuts, of course, right? It's a uh, Busby. I'm sorry. I've never heard of that before. <laughs> everybody does it now. In Canada smoking dope's legal uh, but what they do is they you put dope inside the bowl and you light it up and then you throw it to your buddy and you play frisbee and you get a buzz at the same time it's a frisbee that's a pipe yeah uh-huh. it's got a little contraption in the very center of it that is is used to smoke so the college crowd just love that the freaking thing flies it's unbelievable that's so cool oh my god that's amazing we had tobacco in there we didn't we didn't have any goop in there but it was just it was a funny thing you know i want to tell you about which i i think is pretty hilarious is ken had this thing called the death disc it actually terrified the heck out of me this thing and what he did was he had a regular sky style and he had riveted on the side pieces of aluminum that was triangle shaped so it came to a point, the thing was showing the, di- the, the different discs. He'd say, and this is the depth disc. And to show you that this thing is really sharp, I'm going to impale an apple. And he'd take an apple and he'd impale the damn apple on the, on the aluminum. And then he'd take an orange and he'd impale it. So he's got this apple and this orange dripping there. 
and he's holding it, and then he'd whip it off, the apple and orange go flying in the air, then he would give me the damn disc, and I had to throw it to him. So oh I was, my god, wow. Wait, 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 so he's throwing the death disc at you to catch? No, I. he would give it to me, I wasn't catching this damn thing. So he would give it to me, I would Z it up to him, he would put it on a delay, he would touch the center so that it went vertical, and he would catch it between his knees. Ken can verify this. I'm sure he'll be listening to this, right? Then he'd get on the microphone and he'd say something like, well, how did you like this catch? That catch? Making like he'd been emasculated or something, right? <laughs> but no, I mean, he would do this thing. And I, and I was like, Ken, I don't want to do this. But he, he wanted to do it. And the fans loved it. That is such a funny story because how, how often do you hear people say, oh, you could just put razor blades on that and it'd be the perfect defense mechanism. And they actually did it. Isn't that crazy? It is crazy. It's, it's, it actually also got me thinking about other things that, that people say and all of us are used to them and their common replies like, oh, you play Frisbee. Do you have a dog? Funny to hear the common themes that we've heard in regards to this little activity that we do. That makes me think so that do you have a dog comment I've noticed has declined over the years. When I was a new jammer in the 90s, that was the question that people would ask. And then kind of getting into the late thousands, it started to change to, oh, do you play ultimate? Or, oh, do you play disc golf? Because I think uh -huh. those have become a little bit more common in the cultural lexicon. People actually know those right. as sports. That's an interesting observation. I mean, I, I, I didn't think about it, but once you say it, I'm like, oh, you know, I really haven't heard the, oh, do you have a dog comment really has kind of dissipated from what it used to be is the dominant re reply. I guess people associate discs with more than just dogs these days. Right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I know that WIFDIF is coming up. Uh, I don't know the exact dates. Do you know, do you remember the dates off the top of your head? So yeah, I do know the dates. It's July 12th and 13th coming live Excellent. from Richmond, Virginia. Yes, coming live. So the live stream will be happening for sure, correct? Correct. Yeah. In fact, Ryan and I got together last weekend and were able to integrate the judging system scoring into the live stream. So you should see players' names wow. and scores come up after they do their round. That is really cool. Um, thank you both for doing all that work. I know uh, it's a lot It's a lot of effort, so thank you for all the energy that you guys are putting into that. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. It's actually really fun to see the technology come together because I'm sort of my other thing outside of Frisbee is technology. So it's kind of fun to play with it and figure it all out and then see it. That's very cool. So, um, well, I'm definitely looking forward to seeing the live stream and the integration. And uh, I know a lot of others out there are too. So definitely tune in on the 12th and 13th of July. And on that note, Jake, I will talk to you next time. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Shooting the Frisbees with Jake and Randy. To contact us or for more info, check us out at frisbeeguru.com. Home to Haynesville, shooting the frisbees, and live streaming freestyle frisbee.